Hey, it's Julie Pilot, and welcome to Season 5 of the Idea Fountain in support of creators. I believe it's a critical time for creators. The pandemic dried up so many forms of traditional revenue. Technology is changing the game every single day. Now is the time for creators to be empowered, and we're going to talk about it all season long. You can sign up for the Idea Fountain newsletter by going to juliepilot.co or hitting the link in bio on Instagram. We'll have a lot of activity this season, more frequent episodes, regular IG lives, and even a book club. Episode one, independent, the first independent artist I ever knew also happened to have the number one song in the country, which ended up being one of the most licensed songs of all time and shifted culture to this day. Sir mix is a hip hop pioneer and Seattle family who I've always respected, not only due to his talent or his business acumen, but also forward thinking mentality and respect for community. 2022 will be the 30th anniversary of Baby Got Back. Not just a song about butts, it spoke truth, many say for the first time, about the representation of African-American women in the media. If this song wasn't created, would the Kardashians look the way they do today? Would Brazilian butt lifts be one of the most popular and dangerous surgeries in the world? Would Beyonce ever talked about Jay-Z cheating on her with Becky with the good hair? Hang out for a bit of history and a healthy dose of music biz mentoring from the one and only Sir Mix-a-Lot. I-E-A-F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N. This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. Thanks a lot for coming on to another episode of the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot with friends and family from back home, Sir Mix-a-Lot. What's up? It's so good to see you. And we're, we're doing a fireside chat, which makes me so happy. We have a whole crew of music heads here. It's been tough. People during the pandemic are so zoomed out, right? After a whole day of work and meetings, it's a lot to ask to have people come on board, but there's a lot of people that didn't want to miss this. So, okay. Every single person that jumped on, on the count of three, I'll have you say hi, and then we'll catch back up with you at the end. All right. Uh, one, two, three. Hello. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. That got the job done. Uh, thanks so much for jumping on. I'm so glad to talk to you because it's really important to me. I feel like we're at a really critical time with, I don't know, just as somebody that's worked in entertainment for a long time, it seems like a critical point to champion creatives. There are so many transitions happening in entertainment, how it connects with um, technology, watching so many creators go through what they went through with the pandemic. And um I really wanted to start conversations with people that have inspired me throughout my life just to talk about it and and look for some answers. And it was so awesome. So I don't know if everybody knows this. I started working in radio in Seattle when I was a munchkin. Like I started working at Cube when I was 14 years old. Like Chet Buchanan came to my junior high career day and I was asking a whole bunch of questions and he grabbed me out of Kent Junior High and said, 
You want to help out at the station this summer? <laughs> and so I did. And um, all growing up, I mean, Mix was a part of our family at Cube at the hip hop station. And I was so lucky to grow up around him. And then it wasn't until a few years ago, he was in LA and we went and had dinner and I got to have a conversation with him for the first time as like a grown up who understood the music business. And I was like drilling him with question after question. And all of these answers were blowing my mind because you've had such an incredible career, not only as an artist, but as a businessman. And I was thinking, ah, I wish I had that on tape. I wish more people knew this story. And so now it's so awesome to come full circle. And hopefully I won't tell too many of your secrets, but you can always take a pass. I don't have that many secrets, but I, I, I love the fact that I'm able to, um, you know, come on TV, damn, you know, I'm old. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to actually talk about it publicly because um, perception is, you know, dude is desperate. He's hard up. Poor guy's not making a dollar. It's like, no, that's not me. I'm not that one. And it's not that I'm, I don't brag on it, you know, but it's just, I always thought real money doesn't announce itself anyway. It just, it just is what it is. If you know, you know, if you don't, you don't. But it was just really just, I had a, and I, you know, we're going to get there, but I had some bumps in the road that forced me to learn the business. It wasn't, wasn't like something I, I thought about when I first got into business. I thought, I thought I was protected, but that's not how this game works. So. Yeah. That, I mean, that was going to be one of my first questions. Cause when you first came out with Swass in 1988, it was on Nasty Mix Records. Like paint a picture of the landscape because there's so many people that think of Seattle circle, circa the grunge movement, right? But like in 1998 in, C 1988 in Seattle, what was really happening in music? And I mean, this is a weird question, but to make you even believe you could start your own record label in Seattle, right? And I have to say, I completely have FOMO. I, I really as a kid growing up was super envious of those like nasty mix, puffy, silky jackets you guys all used to have, but uh, like, like just start at the beginning. Well, it was uh, kind of interesting. I used, I was a DJ um, at the boys and girls club. I go up there and spin. Like, that was how I cut my chops. Right. So kid sensation was, you know, he's like a few years younger than me, three years younger than me. And he would come over. We, I lived in the projects back then. And uh, he would come over and help me load out my speakers. We I had an old 69 Buick. That song, My Hoopty, is very real. <laughs> um, and we threw all that stuff in my in my booger green uh, Buick. And we go up to the Boys and Girls Club and we threw these parties. And they became legendary over time. People like, I mean, it was cats like really too wealthy to be in that neighborhood. They were like, oh, I'm going to do I got to kick it. We're going to kick it tonight. And I was doing things that were a little bit different. The Mix-a-Lot name I kind of didn't make it up. People started calling me that because I wouldn't just mix ones and twos. I didn't just mix turntables. So let's just hypothetically, like Freakazoid was real popular, that song back then. Mm -hmm. So I would be playing that song. And while it's playing, I got the fader flip and I'm on the other side programming a drum machine and I'm programming Freakazoid on the fly. So then I would mix that into Freakazoid and they thought it was some special 12 inch single I got out of New York. And of course I'd lie and say it was. And that was kind of where the Mix-A-Lot name came from. So one day I'm, you know, doing what, one night I'm doing what I do. And in what, keep in mind, in that era, 
hip hop was big in Seattle. A lot of people didn't know that. There was a lot of crews, you know, a lot of crews that the Emerald Street Boys to me were the gods of it. I just got lucky. And that's really what happened because they they were incredible. It's just that they were so early that nobody was checking in Seattle for artists. Well, and when you say that, like, I don't know that, right? And when you say saying they were really big in Seattle, were they big at shows? Because there was some AM radio, right? Like, um, was it KRIZ? I don't know. I, there wasn't, a, it's not like there was FM radio playing. Yeah, they were big, with, it was no radio play. There's right? not. Nobody was getting played, but they, you go out to the Black Community Festival, they were just killing it everywhere mm-hmm. they went. And then their shows were so polished. They were miles ahead of where I was. I was just a DJ looking right. for rappers. Cause back then the DJ was the star, yeah. not the rapper. It was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. You know, Jam Master J had songs about him, you know, running, running DMC did about him. So that's all I was looking for. And in walks at the Boys, Boys and Girls Club and doing one of these parties and in walks Ness Rodriguez. Yeah. So at the time, Ness was the man. He was on 1250K Fox and I was a street DJ. So he was like, in my mind, the antithesis of what I was. Right. So I started showing off. I ain't gonna lie. I mean, I was, I was cutting, scratching, flipping, going behind my back. I'm doing as much as I could, but I was telling people I was doing it to show him up, but I was really doing it to get noticed. You know, I just acted like I was hating him. And um, he said, hey man, you know, let's, let's have a meeting with my guy. I was like, who's your guy? He said, my guy, his name is Ed. Come on down and meet him. I said, okay, where at? Chinatown. The first thing I'm thinking is, I can't afford no Chinese food. You know what I mean? But I'm going to front like I can. So I had a little job at the time. Um, sweet cleaning freeways. That's what I used to do. <laughs> Looking like a prisoner. But I would take, I took that little money, went down and I met with him. I met with um, Ed Lock, a gentleman named Ed Lock. And we started talking about a label. Then there was a guy that gets left out of the story a lot, which irritates me. A guy named Greg Jones, who funded uh, nasty mix. He, he put up a lot of that money up front. And we started talking about having this label. What were we going to name it? You know, well, I'm Nasty Ness. You're Mix a lot. So that's where Nasty Mix came from. Was nothing. I wish I could tell you a deep story that had some. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I know Ness. So I always uh, yeah. appreciated that story. You know, my first radio show was coming on after Ness. And he, they were, I mean, they, everybody was always so kind to me, like as being a kid, like I can't say enough good things about Nasty Ness. Yeah, and we and that was it. We 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 kind of it started with an idea. Then we did. At before that, I used to make tapes for people, right? And my tapes would have your name in it, right? So you oh. give me ten bucks, and I I'd have cassette like a ninety minute cassette tape. You'd give me the tape and ten bucks, and I'd do these mixes and I'd rap about Julie Pilot. I'd do all kind of stuff, and you'd have to work for that. I'd, I'd work a week on a tape, and make ten dollars. Well, <laughs> I mean, I got to experience that in real life when you did jump on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and 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 all of a sudden uh, the city was a, was buzzing because I was doing songs about us. I, yeah. I made up my mind a long time ago. I wasn't gonna try to be LA or try to be New York or try to be anywhere else. Just talk about Seattle stuff. I didn't know what I was doing, and then um, we started Nasty Mix Record. I put out a little stupid song called Square Dance Rap. Yeah, and it, and it sold fifty thousand copies. I'm like, it was like the original Old Town Road. <laughs> And then, then Ness started telling me, you got to start using your real voice. And I was scared to use my real voice. That's why I did score that rap, right? That little smirk voice. I thought that, I thought, you know, what's so funny. Somebody told, like, I heard back in the day, I thought you pitched up Kid Sensation. I didn't even know that was you rapping pitched up. It was you. That was me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. Wow. I, I just didn't, 
I wanted to be a DJ. So I, I was talking about myself in square dance rap. Hey, mix a lot, boy. You gonna scratch them ones and twos, boy? <laughs> yeah. Right? That's so what I thought it was get sensation. That's so funny. Um, yeah. So the first record you put out was yourself with square dance yeah. rap. And you said it sold 50,000 copies? Yeah, 53,000 the last we counted, so. And how, and that's in its entirety, like to this day? No, it or probably went more than that. It was 53, yeah. and then one. that's when they knew it's time to do an album. That's. I guess I'm just wondering, like back in the day, I'm trying to wrap my head around, like were you selling records out of trunks? Because it was before SoundScan, right? Or was it all consignment? You were taking them to record stores? You didn't have like well, national distribution, right? Not really. So um, Nasty Mix had some relationships with some distributors, right? Okay. It was, there was one in Sacramento. I can't remember. You had Big State and a few other ones back in the day. And what we would do back then when artists had to do, they had to go and walk up in those dis distribution spots ah. and shake hands. So, you know, I walked, I just... Everyone I could find, I just walk in there, shake hands. What's up, man? How you doing, baby? You got to play this. Come on, man. You got to get this out of here. And, you know, 90% of the time, they'd be like, whatever, you know, because, you know, they were getting grease on the sideline probably. But a couple of them grabbed hold. And really, Mix-A-Lot's launch really was two places, the Bay Area and Houston, Texas. Houston? That's where I, that's where I started selling first, not Seattle. And why do you think that was? I think because Seattle was used to me. They were used to getting tapes for 10 bucks. I ain't going to buy this. <laughs> you know? right. And I mean, that's the only thing I could think of. But I think that's because that's where the two distributors were. Oh, God. It was um, Big State, was, which handled the South. And they told me Houston's blowing up. And then Houston went to Dallas and so on. And those two places started first. And then I started, Ness started putting me on the radio more and more and more and more. And all of a sudden he got told by, I believe it was Steve. I forget Steve's last name. But Steve made him stop playing me or he's going to fire him. Yeah. So um, that was the best thing could have happened to me actually. Cause that forced me to work. I was trying to get on the radio every week. So I wasn't doing real songs. I was doing mixes. I started working on actual songs and we made the Swass album. That was, I made it the Swass album early, actually. Posse and Bravo actually came out as a single in 87 and we stopped it because we knew that, wait a minute, this is going to be big. Let's hold on for a minute. So we held it back and then we created the album and put that out in 88. Well, tell, tell, I want to hear the story. I don't know the story on how my posse on Broadway came together, but like, I mean, that song is so iconic. I just saw Gucci Mane sampled it like this oh, yeah. year. Oh yeah. That's, that's, we'll get to that later. Talking about how you keep your career going. But uh, now posse on Broadway was like, that's what we really did. We, we, yeah. me, Maharaji, Kiss Sensation, we go up on Broadway, hang out at Dick's, eating burgers. You know, we were just kids. Larry's white guy made a lot of money. And chasing women. That was it. No, we wasn't making no money yet. We was just running around, kicking it. And like I said, any chick we could find. <laughs> Not that, you know, you figure if you could, if you could bat 10%, you were doing pretty good. That's how we looked at it. So, you know, so I, every 10, we tried to, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, if you sold 50,000 on Square Dance Rap, I can't even imagine what Swass is a whole sold or My Posse's on Broadway. Well, Swass came out, and this is where it got scary to me, right? Um, well, other than the fact that in 1986, when I didn't have any single, I did the UK Fesh Press Mess in London, England. That was terrifying. I had no, I shouldn't have been there at all. I'm, I'm being honest with you. But other than that, in 1988, we put the album out, still didn't feel real to me, right? I'm still a Seattle boy, and that's it. And we get a call from Yo MTV Raps. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh-oh, what is this about? You know, and so Ed takes the call and he didn't tell me, but I had to go home. And next day he said, so Fab Five Freddy's coming to Seattle. What? Right. So I'm like, oh, is he coming to, who's he, is he coming to play somewhere? I go see him. He said, no, no, no. He's coming to see you. I'm like, are you serious? I was like, Fab Five Freddy. And for those of you who don't know who that is, the, the most heard scratch in the rap game is fresh and both of those come from Fab Five Freddy, right? Just a song called Change the Beat. Anyway, I digress. But he came up here. We took him up to Dick's, took him up to Broadway because Posse on Broadway made MTV. The, the song got played on MTV and I thought we were rich. I didn't have any money in my pocket, but I felt like that was super stardom. When I saw myself on television, um, first thing I thought I had a booger in my nose, I was checking and all that, but it was um, big. I kept pinching myself. It didn't feel real. You know, that I said, somebody from Seattle's on MTV? Really? Okay. And all of a sudden, it didn't blow up. It just slowly kept selling until it went platinum. Wow. The Swass album, not just Posse and Broadway, the whole album sold a million copies, which off of an independent, not only on the West Coast, but not in LA. We were way up in Seattle and we had a platinum album uh, coming out of Seattle. That was that was crazy. Which is so great because it leads me to one of my favorite stories you told me. So you were at independent record label in Seattle, sold over a million copies, went platinum. Everybody in the world was calling, wanting to sign you guys. And you just wanted to stay independent. You didn't want to meet with record labels. You weren't looking for it, but one person got to you. Will you, will you tell that story about how you finally took their call? Yeah, so we had done we had done Swass and um, Swass did did really well, obviously, and then we did Seminar. The Seminar had beepers on it and my hoopty and all that stuff. And then things started to get a little rough with the label. The relationship started, to, you know, it's it's the business. I want to get into all that, but when that happened, um, I'm wondering what am I going to do? It's probably this thing is probably not going to because you know you go from platinum to gold. You think your career's over, really? Even though it's stupid to think that half million is still a lot of records well when all this is going on i get a phone call from a lady this is we went through a lawsuit and all that stuff and i get this phone call out of nowhere i'm wondering where's my career gonna go spiral out of control i'm thinking my career's over and she says can i speak to sir mixlab this is sir mixlab yeah this is heidi robinson I said okay heidi I said yeah rick rubin would like to talk to you and I'm thinking, okay, somebody's playing a joke on me. You know what I mean? Like Rick Rubin on line one, right. And he gets on the phone, says about eight words. He said, hey, when you get a chance, give me a call. I want to talk about it. He didn't say what it was. He just want to talk about it, right? We get out the phone anyway. They, uh, it started with a lie about being Source Magazine. I forgot. Well, that's point. what I remember. Yeah. I remember you telling me. Somebody called and said they were Source Magazine first. Yeah, they, like, somebody from the source wanted to interview you, so you yes. took the call. And I took the call, but they still said, call this number, call the number nothing, right? Then that number called me back, and I said, I'm going to answer it, Source Magazine, hello, and that's how it, that, and I'm like, okay, I thought this was Source Magazine, but yeah, Deaf, deaf American, that'll work. <laughs> I'll take that call, and, and that's where, uh, and, and I'm telling you, meeting that dude was, um, it, it, I didn't know, I wasn't an artist yet, honestly. 
I was just a guy doing songs. Rick Rubin takes you from being just a person that does songs. He turns you into an artist. He helps you to understand who you are. And, and I know that sounds cliche and corny, but it's very true. And, and he, he's the first person I can ever say in this business that it, it, even though he wasn't trying to, it felt like a mentor to me, even though he wasn't. He wouldn't say that because he just was doing what he does every day, which is just good business. But he taught me things when I was producing Baby Got Back. I remember a few of the things he said about sonics and, and how music feels, what, what makes people move. And there is no loud without a quiet, those kind of things. That's where the breaks in Baby Got Back came from because Baby Got Back was pretty just straight, straight through, did no pauses, all that anaconda don't want. That's all Rick Rubin. He, he wanted stops, things to stop and then boom, explode again. Um, which is kind of what grunge ended up being too, that, that stop and stop, like the song had to breathe. And that's where I got all that from. And I stuck with me ever since. That's so interesting because Rick Rubin productions always have a very distinct identity, right? Like whether you're listening to Run DMC or the Beastie Boys or even current things. And I always like had wondered, it didn't feel like he was hands-on producing all your tracks, you were doing it, but it, it was those influences. I, I also loved, aside from the story you told me about Rick Rubin getting to you by posing as a reporter for the Source magazine. Well, he didn't pose now, that wasn't him. <laughs> Somebody did, but it was not Rick Rubin. <laughs> but I, I love the funny. story you told me when you were talking about building a brand and an identity and the silhouettes. Yeah, that that's it's actually somewhat embarrassing. He was in a nice way asking me who I was, right? And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Who I'm, you know, mixed slice. Yeah, but you know, keep in mind that before that, there was a bunch of videos, Posse on Broadway, you know, and some scattered garbage, and then my hoopty. But those were the two big ones, right? So he kept saying, you know, what are we going to do as far as look and image and likeness? And I'm like, dude, I'm, I do what I do. This is what I do. And we started looking through videos and he looked through all my videos and he stopped with my hoopty. Right. And then he pauses on my hoopty and tells me that's the look. I didn't understand what he was talking about. And then he starts talking about different artists, you know, kind of indirectly, but directly like Run DMC. You know what? You know him when you see him. LL Cool J, you know him when you see him. You know, Houdini, you knew him when you saw him. And, and, and he kept doing that and doing it over and over and over and over. And then goes, who are you? Right. Right. And I'm, I'm looking around like, uh, <laughs> you know, and so he starts, you know, doing this ink block kind of like, you could see the outline of Flavor Flav and know who he is. You could, you know, and so you start trying to, do this stuff backwards and figure out what the hell is he talking about? So then we're watching my hoopty and he stops and he goes, that's it right there. And in my hoopty, I had on the big coat with the, with the, with the old gangster hat. And it's funny. The only reason I put on that hat because a friend of mine who's older than me was at the video shoot. I said, dude, let me rock that hat. I'm gonna rock that hat right quick. And that's where the whole, the persona that we know today that came from that conversation with Rick. 
But I really like that though, because he wasn't forcing you to be anything that you weren't, right? right. He didn't right. like say, let's make up the brand. He went and he found like the version of yourself where you were being the most extra and said, let's be extra all the time. Yeah, he, he did. And he, and he uh, and then, like I said, LL Cool J, and he probably doesn't even remember this. I saw him at the um, Sheraton Universal. Never will forget. That's when I realized they didn't have air conditioning. But I saw LL Cool J at the Sheraton Universal, Universal. And I was, you know, I, I spoke to him. No big deal. It wasn't a long conversation. Um, I said, I'm, I'm down here to see Rick. He said, oh, you down here to see Rick? And he, I, he said one thing to me I never forgot. He said, listen to everything he says. I never forgot that. And, and um, I did. <laughs> I did. I did. And, and some of that story, you know, when Baby Got Back was banned, I mean, he, he saw things I didn't see. I thought my career was over. He's like, oh, you're just getting started. He was right. Wow. I love piecing together the timeline because again, as a kid growing up, you know, and not having access to the internet, right? Sometimes you just don't know. And in and in hindsight, I remember I remember asking you what it was like being a rapper from Seattle around the early 90s. Because, you know. When we had dinner, I remember straight out of Compton had just come out. And I, I remember asking you, like, were you scared to come to LA, <laughs> you know, with boys in the hood? Or like, were you accepted? Oh, I'd had no problems. I mean, the cats that I was around. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say what set they were claiming. I don't want to get into all of that. But no, I was I, I was crewed up. So when I when I when I came to LA, it was it was like nine, 10, 12 of us. When we did when we came down and met with Rick, my guys were at the hotel. I obviously didn't bring them up when I met Rick. It was just me and Ricardo. But no, we we were crewed up, so we were cool. I mean, we would go to Compton and kick it in the swap meets, and you know, I, I met Easy E before he even put out a record. You know what I mean? So I had been down there, you know, and talked to those cats. And me and Ice T have always been cool. So I kind of had a little bit of a pass, I guess. <laughs> But the one thing that like really blew my mind is I remember you told me we were talking about since Straight Outta Compton had just come out. You were saying that there's that scene in a concert where I think they're in Detroit and uh, the police say, if you play F the police tonight, we're shutting down the show. They do. And everybody that was almost riot. every night, by the way, it was almost every night. Oh, but you know this because. I was on that tour. That's right? so crazy to me. It was NWA, no, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and it, it was it was Public Enemy. That it was really their tour. Public Enemy, the, the part of the set I was on. Public Enemy, uh, NWA, Stetson Sonic was on some shows. Sir Mix-a-Lot was on some shows. Ice T was on some shows, and um, oh god, who am I forgetting? Who forgetting? Who MC forgetting? Hammer. That's Hammer. Hammer. Hammer that's, was actually yes. That's so crazy to me that Hammer and NWA, NWA and, and MC Hammer toured together, let alone you and Hammer. Public Enemy. When you're close to something, you don't really know how great it is. But I'm when 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 NWA, NWA was talking about getting hassled by cops and FBI the whole time, that was real. It was real talk. They're not they weren't they were not exaggerating. Um, I was also there when they met. Um, oh God, man, why am I forgetting his name? Why am I forgetting his name? It's getting funky. It's getting funky. Uh, Doc, DLC. Oh. I was there when they met DLC. I remember Easy E was on our bus 
like playing one of his cassettes and easy he was like this dude is hot right and we listen to him because like if you don't get him we will you know that kind of thing and it was just you don't get the enormity of it until you another story i gotta tell you this was, was just funny as hell remember i told you about me making those cassettes back in the day yeah okay so i'm making these um tapes and we're in the elevator in austin texas nwa myself and a whole bunch of other people Easy, he's in the back of the elevator and he starts doing this on the seven rain ear. I'm like, and I look back and that's a song that I only released in Seattle. It's horrible, right? <laughs> he, was, he said it and then my Maharaji, my buddy Terry, he's like, he's like, how the hell did he hear that? I said, no, no, no. <laughs> so we asked him and he said, I was in Seattle and I got one of your tapes. You know, he got, he got one of my tapes. I don't know if he came to my window in the projects or not, but that, that was probably before he had gotten big. I met, I met Easy actually way before that. I met him. He was handing me Boys in the Hood. And that was the first thing when he handed it to me. I was doing a show with Egyptian Lover. And he walked up and handed me Boys, from the, Boys in the Hood. It's really weird. Now that you got me talking about it, you don't realize how big that was. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question, the enormity of things. Like, there are definitely times in my life that I've heard one listen records, right? But I mean, in two really specific situations, when you, when Easy hands you Boys in the Hood, did you know? And when you made Baby Got Back, did you know? Neither. When, really? I, when I heard, I heard, I went and played Boys in the Hood, I was like, oosh, I don't want to cuss, you know, but. I was like, this is hot. You know, I'm, I'm, I was really like feeling it. And it was weird. I didn't know it was blowing up. I went home and when I came back, oh my goodness, that cruising down the street in my sixth boat. Oh my God, man. <laughs> I was like, no. woo. I said, we got to go home and change up, right? So yeah, and so I, I had no idea it was going to be that big. Um, and it kind of had that flavor of six in the morning, iced tea, which for me, it was the well, first. And which isn't that, that far off from Posse on Broadway, right? You know, right. yeah, like, the, the whole kind of a monotone, almost delivery. You know, right. you're kind of, you're, you know, kind of a groove almost. And um, I, I didn't know he was going to blow up. And then when Lord knows when I did Baby Got Back, that was not my pick. I, I told Rick he was wrong. I said, that ain't the single. And Rick's always cool. He said, okay, so the first song, you pick. Second song, I pick. What'd you that's pick it. a song? I don't, I, I, I don't pick, know. See, that's, that's how bad it was. You don't even remember. <laughs> well, but no, I mean, there's just a funny thing of when you're at a certain point in your life, like you could be five years older than me, but just because like maybe you were in high school and I wasn't like, you know, it's just a different time. And so it's yeah. not like when baby got back, I was actively in the music industry. It was like right after, you know, yeah, probably. I, yeah. I like this song called One Time's Got No Case. Oh, okay, got it. You know, right. I still hear that song as One Time's Got Bob Case. Only like 10 people <laughs> in the world will think that's funny, but okay. like I, I know that song very well, yeah. Yeah, so One Time's Got No Case, we put that out and Rick funded the video and everything and it flopped. Right. So Rick goes, my turn. And then and, uh, So we start putting together the idea for Baby Got Back. Um, I talked to a few directors because I wanted to make sure people understood what the song was really about. It's, it's wink, wink, nod, nod, but it's not about butts. It's, it's almost metaphoric in that way. And it's, 
it, it was about, it, the song was written in 91. I didn't put it out till 92, but it was written in early 91. And it's really something I had noticed on television because back then Law and Order had just started getting big and all that stuff. I, I noticed something that outside of Diane Carroll in the 70s and Felicia Rashad on The Cosby Show, every other African-American woman you saw on television was either the fat maid that was giving advice to the um, goofy white family, or it was the streetwise hooker who would tell the cops on Law and Order where the bad guys were. That was it. And I really got, I really realized that. So the only way African-American beauty would be recognized is, is if it's somehow assimilated to something else. And that bothered me a lot. So Baby Got Back was kind of a wink, wink, funny way of saying it. And by the time, this was me talking to Rick now, by the time people figure this out, it's gonna be platinum. I actually ended up, I was right about that. Um, and that's kind of what it was. So I went through a lot of directors and a lot of directors really didn't get what I was talking about. And we come into this one guy, I forget his name. Uh, I forget his name anyway. He was a good director. He didn't get it. He tells the story now like, oh yeah, I got it. Yeah, I do it. No, you didn't. Um, so I show up and the main girl, you know, and the video was not written by him. He says he wrote it like, no, that's not what happened. He, he took what I gave him and chunks of information and created something cool and cohesive. But there was a reason that the girl at the start of the video was elevated. There was a reason that the two girls dissing her in the video. Oh my God, Becky, those two girls, they were looking up, not down. There's a reason that me, kind of the hoe in the video that just wants to have sex with her, but I'm praising her at the same time, I was looking up. I never touched her, not one time. That was by design. I, I really wanted that, that visual in that video to see if people could catch on to what I was saying. And, you know, obviously we had the girl playing the supermodel and, and uh, so Cosmo says you're fat. Of course, Cosmo didn't like that, but that's what they were saying in that era. So we got this guy, I think Adam Bernstein. I think that's his name, Adam Bernstein. He comes in, directs the video, video's done. I still didn't know though. To your question, I still was like, eh, you know, it's gonna piss people off. It's probably not gonna get on MTV. And uh, then we had a little politics that Rick Rubin played. He gave a bunch of people at MTV some gifts. I don't, it wasn't money. It was just like some stuff on their table and little butts and all, <laughs> just keeping it on their mind. And there was one person that got kind of left out that helped us out was Benny Medina. Mm. Oh, how was he involved? Benny That's Medina. That's so weird. I love I love hearing these stories because like. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know that everybody knows that ben, Benny Medina was like, you know, what the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was like modeled after, right? Yes. So like here, I know Benny Medina in the managing J-Lo time of his life. And like, yes. what, what did Benny Medina have to do with Baby Got Back? He had something to do with us getting played on MTV. I can't tell you what it was, because I don't know. But I know that Rick was, was massaging on one side and boy, Benny said, I got this. So Benny comes into town. I never will forget this. I had a Bentley at the time. I had just bought this brand new Bentley. And he goes, let me drive your Bentley. I'm like, uh, I know dude is rich, but you know, this is my Bentley, bro. And, but I gave him the keys. I let him drive it. He drove it all day. But I can tell you this. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's because of the Bentley. I like, the, I like to think it is. But when he got done, baby got back was on MTV. 
And huh. uh, it started small, got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and got banned. <laughs> it's just, it's so fascinating to me. Like I haven't really thought about it that much in my life, but I, I mean, I did think about how that one song infiltrated culture so many different ways yeah. over 30 years, right? From the immediate impact, even though it got banned for you just recognizing different, you know, you said African-American beauty, but like different body types and stuff is unbelievable to now the term Becky, right? Yeah, yeah, Becky's, Becky's a, a slang term now. I was like, okay, all right. And, and I, I mean, I just, I really appreciate it, it's so weird to think about a song about ass and then to think about like how important it was for women in a lot of way. But I really, I really appreciate too, even thinking about you being on tour with NWA or like the time you came up, up in, like, I can't think of any songs where you called a woman the B word. And nope. I mean, like, it, it's such a like, it's just so funny, right? Like to, again, have music that promotes sexuality so much, but then like have a deep seated respect for women and their beauty. And single or mothers too. I mean, my, my mom, um, if I ever called a woman uh, the B word, ooh, nah, she, she wouldn't have it. And my mom was like uh, my biggest influence. I mean, my mom and my dad weren't together, right? I'm not knocking my dad. It's just, you know, they just didn't work. But my mom never went after him for anything. She mm -hmm. said, we're, we're going to do this. And there was something about that strength and her independence. And, and she didn't want to depend on anybody to do anything. That's how she was. And I something about that rubbed off on me. And I realized my mom said, this is a sister thing. This is what we do. And I never forgot that. And, and I always said I was going to, 17 years old, I made up my mind that I, someday I was going to do something to praise that woman. It wasn't talking about her butt. It was talking about that independence. She loved that song. And she said, I just wish she wasn't talking about butts. I'm like, mom, what am I going to say? Baby got brains. Nobody's going to listen to that. Come on, <laughs> mom. You know, but it, um, it really was, it was misunderstood. I remember I was getting ready to play in Lincoln, Nebraska. I think it was at, I want to say it was at the college. I think it was at Nebraska University, I think. And these girls were pissed and they this, I think it was a girl student you the female student union they were like gonna boycott and I said you know what let's talk about it let's I, I and that's what I did I got on the radio and I took questions and women were like you just reduced women to a to a body part and I welcomed that debate because that's not what the song was about and by the time I got done I'm not saying every girl agreed but they agreed not to boycott the show I remember that. So it was like a, a lot of weird stuff happened in that time, but you don't, it's not big until you finish and you look back and go, damn, you know, I mean, some of the stuff we, we dealt with early on um, with that song were really difficult. And I didn't really understand Rick's vision because I was coming off of an indie and uh, gone were the days of walking by distributors and, you know, kissing babies. Uh, that's not what this was about. This was about an image and Rick was steadfast in making sure that that image was pierced in everybody's mind. It, that was like, they, they knew it. Um, and his point was, I want you to be able to sing this song 30 years from now and be proud of it. That's it. Look at that. Yeah. So, wow. Well, 
And I want, I want, I love all of these stories so much. And I think it's just such important notes in music history. But I also want just to share some of the wisdom for some of the creators, right? Like, you know, I know there were really important things you did as you actually signed to a major label. Like, I, I think I was talking to Ricardo, who you work with forever, and he was mentioning re-record rights. Uh, and then, um, you know, whether it be uh, my boy Cosign making Nicki Minaj and Anaconda, right? Or we were just talking about the Gucci Mane. What were like some things you did in your career that really set you up for long-term success? Well, the, the re-record rights thing, I wish I could take some credit for that. My manager, I was like, what the hell's re-record rights? What do you mean? I can re-record anytime I want to. Yeah, but you can't put it out. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't do anything with it. So... Um, that was that was his idea. And I thanked him. Matter of fact, I thanked him just the other day again for doing that. I mean, every time we get a licensing deal, um, it happens. But really, my business savvy, you know, my dad used to always say, you know, be. <laughs> I, he had a saying, and I swear by it, hard work is preparation for a lucky day. And I had a bump in the road where I went through this a bunch of lawsuits and all kind of goofy stuff. You know, and baby got back at kind of seen his day. And things started to get rocky because I was so dependent on royalties and shows. And it was just like, I, I figured, oh, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. And I noticed something that when I, when people called to license baby got back, there was something about the process with me that they preferred. And I didn't understand what it was until somebody told me. They said, look, you know what we like about you? Dude, when we want something, we want to use Baby Got Back. We wanted an instrumental. And not only did you give us an instrumental, you gave us breaks where our announcer comes in. Nobody else does that. Then I realized the benefits of re-record rights, right? So I immediately pivoted. And I said, from this point forward, licensing is going to be where I make most of my money. And I'm going to make a lot of money at it because most people are lazy in the record business. I'm sorry, most of these cats, don't get me wrong, they'll produce a beat. But when somebody is calling you and offering you, well, I'll just say a lot of money to do a Target ad. Target called me 2006, right? You know, they wanted the Target ad done. Um, I said, yeah, I got re-record rights. Let me try something for you. They tell me what they, they wanted me to talk about their backpacks. I'm like, oh God, they wanted it to be the baby guy back. But I said, okay, I'll try it. And I knocked it out and they loved it. Well, those people from Target then started telling other companies. And that's kind of where it started. And I made up my mind that I was going to take that business very serious. And same thing, Nicki Minaj, Ice-T hits me with a with a uh, private message on Twitter, right? And he goes, hey man, Nicki's, Nicki's in the studio. She's working on redoing baby guy back. She want to holler at you. Okay. Right. I love how that's how it went down. A DM that's how it went down. Like, I can't even imagine like Nicki Minaj and Ice-T hanging out, you know? No, it was, I, th I don't know how, I don't know how she got in touch with him. I don't know. I don't know if they were hanging out or nothing, but he just said that she was there. She wanted to holler at you and he gave me the number. So I call her up and those of you that think Nicki Minaj is just beauty in a booty. No, that girl was in the studio grinding. I'm talking about putting things together. She knew exactly what she wanted. She, I want this part and this part and this part. Can you get me this part? Do you have that part? I need the part with the scratching on it, blah, blah, blah. She just, she knew what she wanted. She was putting that song together. Nobody was doing it for her that I could see. And that was the only phone call we had. And this is when I knew I was old. I got to tell you this part. So 
you know, streaming revenue was a thing, you know, that that's the thing now. And I'm thinking old school, set up the radio, set up the record. So what are you guys doing to set up the record? And she just gets quiet, like, set up the record? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about, old man? And long story short, she said, we're going to, I think it was August 15th. She said, August 15th is coming out. Just watch. And it was like, the numbers were just, I couldn't believe it. And what I did is I got out of the way. I didn't do a lot of interviews saying what I thought about the song. I just tell people I love it because I did. But I realized me getting out in front of it is, could be detrimental to the song. Get out of the way. Let her do her thing. And I was, I tell people that all the time when you license something, you know, do your best, put your best work out there and get out of the way. Let the, let the brand do what it does. And I knew that she was the next level stuff. So I got out of the way. I really love what you said, though, too, about the music business being lazy, not because it's calling people lazy, but I think that we're in such a cycle of people put stuff out, they release it and then immediately start working on releasing the next thing. I love that you like still put so much time and effort into these works of art that already exist, right? Like go back and find like new ways to do things. Yeah. And, and I want to be, I wanted to be known for doing it, you know, and there's other, there's, I'm not saying I'm the only guy, there's other guys that, that do this stuff very well, but for the most part, people just give them a two track and let people cut it up. I want to get on the phone with whoever this brand is. I mean, I've done so many, I'm, I'm forgetting all of them, but I get on the phone with them and I go, what are you looking for here? Can you do this and this and this? Click, 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 done. Anything else? Yeah, this, just do what you do. That's when you know they trust you. Do what you do. And I love it. And um, I love that because I'm a, I'm a studio nerd first. I didn't, I don't call myself Sir Mix-A-Lot because of uh, just being a DJ. It's really more about this room I'm in. I love engineering. I love creating songs. I love programming. Um, all that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a, a totally Dolby Atmos studio right now. They just came in, did the measurements. They're going to hang stuff from the ceiling. Um, so I'm, I'm a nerd at first and foremost, always have been. And this is going to be fun. And I, and I love making stuff more than touring, not even close. Well, I want to talk about, I want to talk about your role in technology and, um, you know, the nerd side for sure. And uh, I have another question for you, but I also want to say if anybody has any questions, um, just drop your name in the chat and in a few minutes, um, I'll be calling on people. But I'm curious, did you ever feel pressure to leave Seattle? I mean, so much of the industry like historically happens in LA and New York, like when you hit maybe that bump in the road, right? Like, did you ever feel pressure that you had to leave? And when you hit that bump in the road, P.S. that was probably in the middle of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Right, yeah, yeah. My thing is, I, I always thought that was weird. I'm like, why do I have to live in LA to do good business? I, I really never understood that. I mean, yeah, there was no, you know, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't drop an audio file on, you know, on some computer and send it to somebody. So what? I, I never have understood. I can rip a CD and have it to you tomorrow. And that was the way I did my business. And that's the way I still do my business. I mean, I just did a couple of deals uh, recently. <laughs> One I don't want to talk about. But anyway, um, I'm not in it, but oh well. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I never really, I never really saw moving and changing locations as something I needed to do. Oh, you got to be in LA. That's where it's happening. Well, I'm not that kind of cat. I'm not the dude that's just walking around being seen 
and oh, look at me, I'll make money just because you're looking at me. No, I don't believe that. I believe that, let's take Mike, you know, uh, Mike's Mike's a new act, Mike's bubbling right now, but Mike needs that something. Mixer, and I may have that something. So I'm going, hey, Mike, check this out. Here's what I'm gonna give you, boom, take it, do your thing, make your money. Cause I'm gonna get mine on the back end. Mike's a big star, I get mine on the back end. And a lot of artists, their egos don't let them do that. It's, it's hard to realize, you know, Dude, you're in your 50s now. Okay, you can produce some tracks, some heaters, but it ain't your turn. And I, I still generate capital, but meaning not your turn. It's not your turn to stand on top of that mountain. You did that already. Right. I I love and I just appreciate. I know from growing up in Seattle, I always say my three favorite things are music, creativity, and community. And that community side, the story you told about everybody was making songs about LA and New York and you just made it about Seattle. I love that. But I also know that when Seattle was having its moment with grunge, right? Like you connected with that community because you had your group with the presence of the United States of America subset. Yeah. That was incredible. But then I also love what you did during the pandemic with the Washington Nightlife Association. Will you, will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, kind of weird because I, I remember um, when this thing hit, we were we were getting ready to do a big show in Lafayette, 30,000 people, like some big outdoor thing and super spreader waiting to happen, right? But this guy was trying to call our bluff. He wanted me not to show up, obviously. So if I cancel, he gets his deposit back or whatever. But I showed up. But I called him, I said, dude, if you're doing this over a deposit to make me show up, you can, I don't want your deposit. I don't want you going broke, right? I give him his deposit back. So that's when I realized, man, this is gonna be, this is gonna get ugly. And on the way home, you could just hear about businesses back home, shutting down, shutting down, you know, the, the, the Paramount, nobody's coming, you know, the show box dying, the crocodile closing. And um, I didn't know what to really do about it. And then my buddy Craig, who owns the Wild Buffalo out in Bellingham, calls me up. He's like, dude, we're doing this thing called Keep Music Live. We're trying to generate some money to keep these small venues open. And there was a couple other people involved. And I personally, early on, and I'm just being honest, I thought the story, the pitch was off. Um, on if, if people don't know about clubs and small venues, they would think it's some big fat guy in dark clothing, smoking a cigar with $10 million he's counting and, and he's paying everybody 50 cents. No, that's not what this is. And I, and I thought that we weren't really, we weren't doing a, a good enough job describing the ecosystem surrounding that club. You know, outside of one club, there's a pizza place across the street. Starbucks is down the street when you're sound checking. There's businesses around there. There's an ecosystem around that club that makes money every time that club fills up. When we started telling that story and Craig, and I got to give him credit for this, Craig made the point because I, because I had read somewhere that the average small venue owner grosses about 4% of his revenue, revenue. So right. Of his gross revenue. So he makes, he nets about 4% of his gross revenue and that's nasty. And when he told that story, you could see in his face, I could see he almost was crying, but he still wanted to get back and do it. And when we told the story that way, money started pouring in. And of course, then people said, well, why don't you put some in? So, <laughs> so, so what, I, what I would do is that we'd have these giant Zoom meetings 
with a bunch of potential donors. And I'm like, okay, I see some, I see some fat cats sitting over there. Look like they got a lot of money. I said, all right, 10 racks. And I dropped 10 grand in and somebody else would, all right, I got you 10. It was like playing poker, but, but it was all in fun. And uh, I don't know how many venues we save, but to, um, to see some of the owners and the emotion on their face during some of these Zoom meetings, you, you knew it was worth it. You knew it was worth it. So I really got into that. And I don't do a lot of that kind of stuff because a lot of time it's, it becomes more about the artist than the actual people you're trying to help. And I don't like that. I hate that. If they just stood me up there in a, in a hat and I said, donate money, I'm not interested. I said, yeah. but if you guys want me, if I can get my, my feet wet, I can get my hands dirty with you guys, I'm down. That's how it was for me. That means so much to me, even those few venues you named, right? Like in Seattle, the Showbox. That's my favorite place to see a show in the world. And it's like, we almost lost them to condos. And it would be such a shame for like the city to fight back and save the Showbox from people buying it and flipping it to condos to only lose it during the pandemic. I loved, I think the Seattle Times, the headline was, Sir Mix-a-Lot rolls up his sleeves to help local venues and opens his wallet. So uh, that that's incredible. What blew my mind was when you hear those stories about how little money they made, Yeah, you would think more of them would be saying, I'm going to move on. They were like, I want to do this again. I mean, passionately. I'm like, this is, this is, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of, that's how I with music. I don't, I don't come in my studio and think how much money am I going to make today? Right. You do it because you love it. You absolutely love I create songs that people have never heard just for the fun of it, you know, and that's, you know, it's a labor of love. It really is. And, and then I'm curious on the community tip. Um, do you feel like being in Seattle, especially in the nineties is like Microsoft was on fire and Amazon was starting out. Did, did being a part of that community help get you connected to tech early on? Um, because you I, I know you've done a lot in tech in VC. Yeah, when it wasn't called tech, I was into tech, right? I um, I was a kid, you know, well, we all were. When I was a kid, I got into uh, electronics early on, before music. Um, 13 years old, my mom bought me some walkie-talkies. That's where it started, right? And I got these walkie-talkies and I'm playing with them and I broke one. So I went and got this thing called a schematic. And it's like, that little pancake looking thing, that's called a capacitor. If this goes out, you won't have modulation, right? So I learned how to I learned what a capacitor does and what its job is. And slowly but surely, I started building RF amplifiers for ham operators and all that stuff. Um, and it ended up paying off because when I got into the, uh, to, hey, what's up, prof? When I got into the music business, how I got in, how I got a studio in my house, I ended up with a 16-track Ampex tape machine that was broken. And the guy said, if you move it, you can have it. I said, I can have it. He said, if you move it, you can have it. Those things were like 25 grand back then. But I moved it, got it downstairs in my, my little crib and worked on it and worked on it. Come to find out it was just a couple of power supplies. One, one a 12 volt DC, one 24 volt DC. A couple of capacitors went out. I replaced the transformers, replaced the caps, put the diodes in it. Boom, done. You know, so I've been doing that forever. So tech was there, but to your point, um, when computers became real prominent in music, um, that's when I noticed it was the 90s. So it was, you know, Baby Got Back was produced on these things called uh, Akai Atoms. They were 12 track digital units, but they ran high eight videotape. 
So it was two of those tied together. I think the only two people that had big ones were me and Madonna, where we had a bunch of them tied together. And that was it. I don't know why she was as dumb as I was to buy them damn things. They were garbage, but it worked for that record, right? And, um, but being around tech, I got around, I was around Microsoft a lot, early days of Amazon. I was around a lot of startup companies and it was just fascinating to me. I wasn't part of them. I didn't put money in them. I just wanted to be around them and watch them build things. And I realized that they were on a whole nother level. They were moving so fast through stuff. <laughs> I'd be sitting in meetings like, I don't know what the hell you guys just said, but okay, let me let me go backwards and see if I can get to phase one again. But it, it was part of something we all got into. I think the grunge guys didn't like it that much. They didn't seem to really gravitate towards it, but I was at Microsoft as much as possible, uh, especially with them when they started doing Xbox stuff. I did a couple of songs for their um, the basketball game they did and the car racing stuff. I tried to get them to use a video I did called Cars. I said, dude, you can do this, man, come on. They copied it instead of that, so whatever. But I never got paid for it. I just wanted to be in that, in, around technology. I love technology. Uh, this is the only time I can tell this story. I did the, I was the DJ on Project Gotham Racing. I was one of a few DJs. Like you could really? get the car on the first Xbox game. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. See? Just straight Seattle. Okay, we've got a couple questions. Uh, Colleen, are you still there? Yep. Hi. Hi, Colleen. Hi. This is the best kind of conversation because it feels like we're eavesdropping in on like just this great conversation that two old friends are having. So thank you. It's so wonderful. All right. The $10 mixtapes. Have any of them resurfaced? Do people send them to you? Are they out there? Is there like a cult following for them? Have you ever done a call out for them? Whew. I tell you what, um, I, if they're out there, please send them all back so I can destroy them. <laughs> because I would do this stupid stuff with my voice, like run through a little harmonizer and be like, <laughs> you know, that was the way you had to tag that tape. Right. And then I, um, but no, I, I, uh, I do have people to still come up and they'll sing this stupid songs. I would redo rap songs. Like I redid Buffalo Gals and I call it High School Ducks. And I did a song about ugly girls at Rainier Beach High School, right? <laughs> Keep in mind, I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid at that time. So I don't know what I was like, I don't know, 17, 18 years old and just doing stupid stuff, copying other people's songs. I would, I would actually do songs talking like I could beat Jam Master J at DJing. <laughs> Cause I knew it would never reach New York, right? Nobody I never know, I'll get away with it. So yeah, I, I do have people that have those tapes, but they won't give them to me because they know I'd throw them, I'd degrade them and tear them up. But one guy dubbed, four of them he bought from me, dubbed them all and saved them the CD. And I told him, if you ever release any one of them, I'll kill you. Cause that shit was terrible. Woo. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's what's like too bad about the internet, right? Like there's not as many opportunities to fail and experiment, right? Because it'll be there forever. Yep, it will live there forever. And so even when you've done 10 songs better, they'll go back and man, listen to this garbage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> forever. It, it amazes me when I license to brands and they go, like say it's an internet-based kind of campaign. It cracks me up when they say it's only going to run six weeks. No, it's not. It's going to run forever in perpetuity. You, come on, man. I'm not boo-boo the fool. But that's where that's the, that's that's where we live right now. Yeah. Do you have old footage of 
Like when you were ever out on tour, did you have a video camera with you? Like when you were on tour with NWA, like behind the scenes stuff? Yes. Um, wait, hold on a second. Let's see. Let's see if I got them over here still. Uh, yeah. Yes, I do. I got a whole bunch of that stuff. Oh my God. I got the one, I got stuff with NWA on that tour I'm talking about with Public Enemy and stuff. I have, um, I have the, the Baby Got Back tour, which is an interesting tour because we started that tour when just when we got radio play and the song was not even charted. And you, you see, there was no internet back there, kids. So remember, this is why I didn't know. But as we're touring, we have no idea that the song is blowing up, right? Because like I said, there was no internet. So we hit Florida, second to the last date. And I'm walking behind this guy who owned the club that we were playing at. And I'm wondering, cause there's a hotel, we're in uh, Pensacola. There's a hotel like Panama City, something, that's what it was. People all the way to the top of the hotel standing on the deck. I'm like, what's going on out here? I was trying to figure out what they were looking at. And he's like, dude, they can't get in. So it was a club where the, the dance floor was a pool. They would cover it up at night so they could see the show from the hotel. And they were there to see me. I'd never had a crowd like that ever. And that was um, the day the record went number one. And the guy tells me while I'm holding the camera that I, he said, and today, who do we have? The guy with the camera who just went number one. And I told him he was lying. I said, dude, I ain't number one yet. I ain't even close. And he didn't repeat it. So I'm still not knowing. I do the show not knowing. And I was actually number one. And it just, that blew my mind. I was like, you know, I, I realized when I got there, I'm like, this might not happen again. I better soak this in. So uh, yeah, for two weeks, I was partying. Then somebody knocked me off. No, actually, no, I was there five weeks. Yeah. Five weeks. And still to this day, again, it's so relevant. You know, we've got a baby bib downstairs that says baby got snacks. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I had uh I wish I had patented her own baby got anything, right? So, but uh that's all right. That's all right. It keeps the song out there. That's the way I look at it. All right, a couple more. Uh here's one that just popped up in the chat. What's the worst advice you've ever received? And what would you tell new artists in the industry? to stay away from? Worst advice I ever received was from a so-called industry expert who told me, if you really wanna make money in this business, tour 365 days a year. Oh yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, that's horrible. I mean, okay, so don't have a life. Don't have a wife, don't have a life, don't have kids, don't do nothing, don't see your family. You've gotta be kidding me, man. And, and that, was, uh, that was the worst advice. What was the second part of that question? Oh, and uh, what would you tell new artists to stay away from? Ooh. I do think your touring thing, though, that is, that is so important, especially since so many artists pre-pandemic just generated all their revenue from touring, right? But you can't give it all away all the time. You have to leave some room for some inspiration and inner peace, right? So... That yeah. was bad advice, but, but, but back to you, what else do you think artists should stay away from? I think, um, I did a song and it's not out. It's actually, I did it with the president. It's called Addicted to the Fame. Don't chase fame. Hmm. Um, don't do that. I mean, once you, once you reach, okay, I'll give you an example. Drake blew up, dominates, right? He does the video God's plan at the exact right time 
just when people think all he talks about is his money, he just gives it away. And it was that was the most beautiful video I've ever seen. I couldn't believe people knocked him for that video. How do you knock a cat for doing what he did in that video, right? And I I think that some somebody I don't know I, I think I don't I don't think somebody's in this ear. I just think he's this that aware of what's going on. But you'll notice cats that flaunt a lot when they fall they fall hard because the whole image all of it you have to evolve. So I would say stay away from your own hype. Don't don't buy into it. Because once you do, I, I I did. That's why I know I'm not, I'm speaking from, this is what I did. And I went bankrupt. I went bankrupt and I said, this ain't gonna happen again. And I realized it was because I was so arrogant. You know how many brands called me then and wanted to license? I'm like, I ain't licensing you nothing. Please get out of my face. You know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> and they were looking at their watch. This career will be over in five, four, three, two, you know, that kind of thing. And that's kind of, yeah. I, I um, would say, stay away from being addicted to that, that, num that pole position, because it means nothing, really. If you can survive as an artist and keep things floating, that's the way to do it. If you blow up on something, that's great. But if you keep your nose wide open, sniff around, the business will uh, creep up on you. And if, you, if your nose is open, you'll smell it, you'll grab it. I love it. Okay, um, Mike says he has a question too. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I just wanted to say, I love how humble and transparent you are. This has been a fantastic experience and really inspiring. And I hope that your message continues to reach independent artists. Uh, my question, if Baby Got Back were to be released for the first time today, how do you feel it would be received or interpreted in 2021 compared to 1992? <laughs> <laughs> you'd, get, you'd be like, why is this so fast and it's not halftime? Why is this not trap? Why is why is the kick drum not distorted? You know, <laughs> you know. No, I don't know. I think, but I think I get your point though. I wonder. Well, let me. Uh, that would sound a little self-important. I don't want to say that, but I've always wondered how much of people like myself talking about that type of beauty in the way we did, how much of that influenced what we do now, right? So in other words, would, would, would women who love hip hop still be the same if none of that happened? If Public Enemy didn't, by the way, I have a cool Public Enemy story that, that Chuck D doesn't remember, but God damn, I love it. Anyway, I'll tell you that later. Um, I always wonder if, if the mindset was as it is today and I released Baby Got Back, they'd be like, so what? We already know that, but if I don't, you know, if if the sisters didn't step into the uh, step into a woke moment, they would love it. I, I I just it depends on mentally where we'd be because I think what what Public Enemy especially did for us as a community was very important, very 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 important, and 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 I remember being on tour with them and watching the message get across. I remember, and I'll tell this story. Uh, he doesn't remember, I remember like it was yesterday. Public, I was, Chuck D was signing autographs. I'm just standing there. I've always been a big fan of Chuck D. And um, from day one, just, just his whole, just his mannerisms, the things he believes, he has beliefs and he lives by them. What a concept. And um, there was a girl that was saying stuff that she shouldn't be saying. And one of the cats with Chuck, 
Chuck kept looking at her kind of as if to say, don't say that, you're embarrassing us, us. You can see it in his face. And I forget who it was, but one of them, it wasn't Griff, but one of them said, do me a favor, sister, quit talking like that in front of people. Think about what you look like when you walk away, sister. I'm like, it, it's just something, you could see her, she was ashamed, but you could see her head rise. You know what I mean? And I was like, wow. I mean, it happened that fast. And I forget who it was. And it was not Chuck himself, but it was his crew. And he rubs off, you know what I mean? And, and to tell that girl, and you know, she was, she was a groupie. You know what I mean? Doing what groupies do, you know? <laughs> at that time, I would have probably taken her to the room. I gotta lie, I can't lie. But you know, I didn't. But I think that when he said that, I never forgot that. I never forget the enormity of that. That was huge. To, to basically let her know, no, going to the room with me ain't making you nothing but a hoe. You know, pick your head up, be, be proud of who you are. And that moved me because that reminded me of my mom. That's how my mom was. And I thought that was probably one of the weightiest moments I ever witnessed in my life. I mean, just it, like I said, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was because Chuck toured with the S1Ws. He had Griff. He had Terminator X. He had everybody played. He had so many people. But his crew was all the same. And it was something about, I became a super public enemy fan after that. I was just like, Chuck D is the man. Wow. I love that. Um, okay. One last question from Prophet. Uh, and I think this is a good one because uh, I know the inside. I know, uh, I've known Ricardo that you work with for a really long time. And Prof wants to know, what are some key tips on building a bond for you and your team that spans a career like you two have? Um, everybody's going to say trust. And yeah, trust is everything. But to me, have a good understanding of who, who each of you are, what, what you bring to the table, negatives and positives. I, I think it's good. Sometimes Ricardo will do something because he knows I'm terrible at it. He knows it. He'll, he'll go, no, nah, I already knocked that out. Don't worry. <laughs> right? I do the same thing. Like, like with money, I'm anal about money, right? As he, without, he'll tell you right now, if I get a $100,000 check, he's paid before day's end. And because I'm very anal about, you know, you go bankrupt one time, have a problem with the IRS, you learn to manage money. And I'm very anal about making sure my people are paid. Um, because artists are known for not paying people. And I don't want to be that guy. So it's just little things, you knowing one another, trusting one another. Yeah, that's it's important. But if you know one another, you know what you're not good at. And you know what you are good at. And you play off of it. Ricardo and I, people don't know this, but we don't even have a contract. No contract. We've never had one. And nobody is going to step in between us. That ain't going to happen ever. No matter how much money they put on the table, ain't going to happen. Um, because there's a trust level there. I mean, uh, Ricardo, to me, um, when I was when I was having my problems with Nasty Mix, Ricardo was instrumental in putting my career back together. Very instrumental. He's the one that got me the lawyers to handle the lawsuits. He's the one that, you know, negotiated that deal with Rick Rubin where I was sitting in a hotel with $250 in my pocket. <laughs> He's the one that negotiated that deal. And he had, he had balls of steel because I was like ready to just fold and just let's take whatever he offers. And Rick's like, Ricardo's like, nope, nope, we got this. Don't worry about it. So you, you got to trust them, but you really have to know what they're good at and respect it. Know when to step out of the way, fall back, know your role and let them do what he does best. 
That's awesome. Well, um, Mix, thank you so much for hanging out and uh, sharing all those stories. And I don't know, anybody can turn on their mic and like- Hey, is, is, this, the profit, is this the prophet that I know? You it already know, bro. No. Hey, hey, let me tell you, bro. I, I, hey, they took the measurements today. <laughs> you know, I'm excited. You know what I'm talking about, right? They took the yeah, measurements. Yeah. Come on. You know yes, I'm sir. excited. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yes, thank sir. you again for blessing us today, man. Oh man, thank you, man. Like I said, you 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 and uh, you messed me up. You cost me about sixty five grand already. <laughs> Don't put that on me. To tell Rick, tell Ricardo that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he put about sixty five grand on me. No, we can I say it? Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So so y'all, I'm sure everybody here has heard about spatial audio and 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 what Apple's doing with it, and and, and which is beautiful. I love the fact that. We're talking audio, not movies. So I get I get on, we get on the horn with Prophet. Before we got off the phone call, he's like, no, ain't too many hip hop hip hop cats doing this right now. I said, doing what? He said, they don't really have their studios set up for Atmos. I'm like, oh shit, let me handle this right now. <laughs> so I get, and you know, we chopped it up and I got off the phone and, and I made the purchase. My garage is full of stuff right now. Um, and we gonna put we got we got these ceilings ready. We getting ready to we get ready to dial it in, man. We get ready. To dial yeah, it in. yeah. We get ready. We got, we got the marks up there. They measured everything off, and they're gonna do the um, the ceiling based stuff first. And then we're gonna we're gonna do a um, seven dot two dot four. So that's what we're doing. From ha from ham radios to spatial. That's all I gotta say. That's it. That's it, man. And it's your fault, man. It's your fault. <laughs> you took money from my family, just like that. Oh, on that note, I'm out. <laughs> I told them they better come with a baby got spa uh, spatial, like, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I tell you what, I tell you what, I we're working on a couple of NFTs. And um, 30th anniversary of Baby Got Back's coming up. So next year. So, uh, yeah, I just. Yeah, I 92. Got it. Yeah, we got some stuff with we got some stuff with me and Chris Ballou and the presidents we're going to do. And we got some stuff that we, yeah, it's, it's going to be, we'll see. I, you know, I, the NFT thing, I still, I, I still got to get my head around it. I, I understand it, but it feels weird that a few people, you know, get it. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping that we figure out a way to whoever purchases the big one can then, if they'd like to release it. And monetize it themselves because they own it but we'll see that's that's something you release the blockchain and let them let them tear it up but we'll see or you could do a mixtape with their name in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that was those were early nfts huh <laughs> ten dollar nft that's what i was selling I love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with the Idea Fountain. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining and, um, again, sharing all your stories and wisdom. I appreciate it. Thanks again for supporting another episode of the Idea Fountain. There are so many ways you can support this community and creators. One, follow and share on social media at the Idea Fountain. Two, you can leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And finally, hit us up. You can uh, email me, juliepilot.co or at the Idea Fountain on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. And I can't wait to see, I can't wait for you to see what's next. <laughs>